shows. Now, my next guest is an award-winning author, documentary producer, director, and radio host. He's published 35 books and more than 4,000 articles, but perhaps his biggest challenge yet is his latest book, Narcos Inc., which looks at the rise and fall of the Cali Cartel. Based in Colombia and led by just four men, the Cali Cartel contained the richest drug trafficking gang the world has ever seen. They waged a bloody war against Pablo Escobar's Medellin Cartel, leaving hundreds dead and injured. It's been described as the most detailed study of the murky world of narcotics traffickers ever seen. Ron Chepsuk, you're welcome to the program. Good morning. Now, uh, before we talk about the content of the book, can you tell me something about the kind of research that you need to do to pull something of this magnitude together? Well, uh, I spent almost, uh, I guess, seven or eight years uh, uh, probably uh, researching and writing the book, but it actually was done over a 20-year period. That's when I first got, got interested in Colombia in the uh, late 1980s when um, Escobar was running wild in Colombia and, uh, and implemented his narco-terrorism campaign. I was getting uh, freelance writing assignments after I married a Colombian woman. Uh, so I was going to Colombia uh, quite regularly. So it's, it's been, you know, my research on this subject has been ongoing over the last 30 years. Now, the Medellin cartel of Pablo Escobar, we've all heard about, we've all yes. watched uh, Narcos on Netflix, well, many of us have. Um, the Cali cartel sort of was under the radar for many people. So what was the Cali cartel? Now, the Cali cartel is named after this, the fair city of uh, Cali uh, in Colombia, and uh, it essentially operated from uh, about the mid, mid-1970s until uh, the mid-1990s when its uh, main leaders were taken down, Hilberto um, and Miguel Rodriguez Orwella. And uh, it uh, was primarily uh, uh, interested in transporting cocaine. And uh, for its early part of its history, it was willing to take a second seat to to Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel because its style was low-key. It didn't like to be in the news. uh, they preferred the bribe to the bullet, but they can kill just as, as, as well as uh, Escobar um, did uh, if they needed to, but they just didn't do it in a spectacular fashion uh, the way Escobar uh, did. And uh, when Escobar went to war with Colombia uh, in the uh, mid-1980s, uh, they gradually increased in power because the uh, resources and attention of the United States and its Colombian ally was focused on Escobar. And so they, by the early 1990s, had almost 90% of the cocaine um, traffic um, in the world. And they had spread to Europe. Uh, They were the first really major uh, international drug organization uh, from the Western Hemisphere to operate uh, in in Europe. And uh, they were really powerful. But they also set up the seeds for their own destruction because once the Medellin cartel was taken down and Escobar was... uh, was uh, hunted down and killed in 1993, they became the focus of U.S. and Colombian uh, anti-drug law enforcement efforts. Now, just to get a handle on the economics of all of this, if uh, you were to pay a peasant a dollar for a certain uh, quantity of coca, um, how much would that uh, then multiply before it reached the streets of a city in the United States? uh, It would be multiplied uh, several times by the time it reached uh, uh, the um, uh, market, whether it was the United States or Europe. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the, the price of cocaine fluctuated. Uh, it, it worked by the, by the laws of supply and demand. So if cocaine uh, 
um, anti-cocaine efforts were successful by law enforcement, uh, that made cocaine difficult to get, and uh, so the price of it uh, went went up. But uh, cocaine was originally called the champagne of drugs because it was favored by the rich, you know, the musicians, uh, you know, uh, well-connected uh, politicians, athletes, and all that. But uh, the Median cartel and the Catholic cartel made it a mass market drug. So uh, by the late 1970s, when cocaine started to get a really, really big hold uh, in the United States, uh, the price of uh, cocaine had dropped considerably. How much money, though, were they making? Well, it's always difficult to to really get a, a exact figure because it's illegal, right? I mean, uh, co- <laughs> drug trafficking is illegal. But uh, the DEA always comes up with, with estimates, and uh, I saw the figures, and I was told the figures in the early 1990s when I was uh, researching this book that that they were making uh, between five and seven billion dollars a year, and uh, had control of 90 percent of the of the drug market. And uh, I, I saw those figures also in in uh, Time magazine. Now, the way they did business, they wanted, as you say, to be low key. So, for example, someone who is a, a wholesaler for them or even a retailer, the message would be live low key. Don't buy the oh, flash yes, car. Yes. Don't don't parade your wealth, even though you might be very wealthy out of cocaine. Exactly. Uh, well, what they did was they, they set it up like a, like a business. They were CEOs of one of the biggest corporations in the world. It was called Cali Cartel Incorporated. And... Uh, when, when they, they were setting up their, their operation in the United States, they even had written instructions for how their employees were supposed to react. You know, they were supposed to keep a low, a low presence. They were supposed to cut their lawns, you know, so that people wouldn't get suspicious. Uh, you know, they were supposed to go to work or, or go to a job like they had a job and then come home at night. And uh, they kept it, you know, they kept it uh, very, very business and very, very efficient. And uh, they operated a lot like a, like a McDonald's. You know uh, where they had these franchises set up all over all over the world, uh, making money for them. Now the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, so-called, um, it kind of facilitated the the movement of drugs as well. Yeah, it was one of the biggest boons uh, ever to uh, drug trade because you know uh, the uh, NAFTA um, facilitated the free exchange of goods, you know, between uh, Mexico, Canada, the United States, legitimate goods. But it also facilitated the uh, the uh, movement of illegitimate uh, goods like uh, like heroin and and cocaine. So uh, it became an increasingly difficult problem for the, for the United States um, uh, law enforcement authorities to deal with. Now, can you give us an example of the innovative ways in which they moved drugs? Because you're talking about a huge demand in the United States for drugs. Therefore, rather large quantities of the stuff have to get from Colombia into the North American mainland. Yes. And how and, do they do it? Yes, yes, yes. And, and movement of drugs is always a cat and mouse game between law enforcement and, um, and uh, uh, or drug, or, uh, drug organizations like the Cali Cartel. And uh, the Cali Cartel was always coming up um, uh, with innovative methods of, uh, of, of moving uh, cocaine, you know, they would, they would do it in concrete. They would bury it in concrete. They had, uh, there was one instance where uh, uh, a whole bunch of, of goldfish <laughs> were, 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 um, were, uh, died because of a cocaine overdose. Some of these bags uh, that, that they kept the um, uh, cocaine in that were being shipped to the United States uh, broke. Uh, there was an instance in um, 
in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, where uh, they moved uh, drugs uh, by, by hiding it in plywood, of all things. And uh, the, the deal uh, evidently was worth something like a billion dollars when they busted it. They estimated the, the drug shipment would have been worth about a billion dollars on the street. Uh, the the uh, addressing of the problem by the United States government, by the DEA, um, you talk about they addressed the supply side, in other words, trying to clamp down on the cartels, but they didn't really address the demand side, in other words, why so many Americans wanted yes. to use these drugs. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, historically, it's always been about uh, two-thirds uh, focused on supply, only about a one-third on demand. And when I was in Colombia researching uh, over the years as a journalist and as a writer, I would hear complaints from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Colombians uh, saying that, you know, there wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't such a demand for it. And I think they've got a really strong argument on that. And um, uh, until you really address the demand side, uh, you know, whether it's uh, drug treatment or whatever, uh, you're always going to have this problem because as long as you have somebody wanting a product, whether it's illegal or legal, you always find somebody to supply it. And that's the history of the international drug trade. If you look at recently with El Chapo Guzman, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the famous Mexican who's become probably the second most famous drug trafficker after Pablo Escobar, he was taken down. Nothing has changed. <laughs> it's business as usual. Yeah. And now the, the, the drug, U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, is going after the next big name in drug trafficking. And they'll take him down it'll be somebody else. And meantime, we hear from uh, President Trump and others that America is in the middle of an opiate addiction uh, epidemic. Legal, legal drug and these are legal drugs. Yeah, so, legal drug and pharmaceutical, some say, have become the new big drug traffickers by, 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 by um, facilitating this man for, uh, for opiates. Yes, uh, that's part of the problem. You know, it's, it's a natural, you know, I hate to say it, but it's, it's natural for a man to get a high. You know, whether it's uh, from something spiritual like religion or something illegal like, like drug trafficking. Uh, so you're always going to have a problem with drugs. Uh, and the drug's just going to shift. You look, at, you look at the United States, we've had heroin, then we had cocaine, then we had methamphetamine, uh, you know, ecstasy, uh, whatever. And then now we have these, uh, now we have these uh, illegal drugs on, on that. So, uh, you know, there has to be a, a different approach to the so-called war on drugs. First of all, you got to drop the metaphor. It's not a war. You know, it, it's a social problem, drugs. And uh, if you have war, you got to have winners and losers. And you really can't have uh, that, that sort of thing in a, in a, in a, in a situation where, where people are using uh, illegal drugs. Now, how were the brothers finally brought down? I mean, was it an inside job? Were there informers? Was it intelligence-led? Well, it's a little complicated, and I hope I haven't seen the Netflix uh, series yet. I'm, it just came out last weekend, and I hope they, uh, they, they, they address it. But it was a little bit of, uh, of, of everything. Uh, it was a little bit of, uh, of um, the United States, uh, you know, re redirecting their resources because all the resources are directed against Escobar because he was such a narco-terrorism threat. So they directed it towards uh, Columbia. You had an individual who will show up probably in the uh, – the third season of, of Netflix, Jorge Salcedo, who is their director of security, became an informant. Um, and you had uh, a corruption scandal uh, similar to Watergate in a way. Uh, they called the so-called narco cassette, where um, uh, it was revealed that uh, the Cali cartel had given six million dollars to the uh, campaign of presidential Ernesto Samper. 
And uh, that's how close they came to turning Colombia into a narco-democracy. But once Samper took office, uh, in 1994, he had to, you know, he had to show <laughs> that he was on the payroll. So he became tougher against the Cali cartel than probably he would have been otherwise. Uh, it's an extraordinary story and uh, one which, you know, we will read your book, uh, but also we'll keep an eye on Netflix, uh, the series three of, of Narcos. Uh, I, I believe um, becoming a full-time writer, Ireland had a small role to play. Oh, yeah, a big role. That's why I became a writer. I wasn't a writer until I came to uh, Ireland. Uh, I was there in 1991-1982. I'm a graduate of National University of Ireland, University College Dublin, in archival administration. I sold my first article to uh, English magazine, Belfast Marathon, uh, covering the first Belfast Marathon, uh, which seems pretty uh, innocuous today, but back in the early 1980s, after you know, Bobby Sands in that period, uh, was a pretty big deal. So uh, that's where I became a writer. And so I'm always uh, you know, grateful to, uh, to uh, Ireland for getting my start. And you're a man of many parts. You have a radio show called Crime Beat. Yes. And you've, you've interviewed some Beat. of the biggest gangsters that we've heard of. Yes, I've had, I've had some uh, uh, really uh, interesting people on the uh, show. Um, it's every Thursday night. And uh, your listeners can, uh, can go to uh, www.artistsfirst.com uh, to get information about the program if you're interested. Yeah, and you interviewed people like Henry Hill. He was uh, characterized by Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, the movie. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You, you know your uh, gangster film history. And, uh, yeah, I did uh, Joe Pistone, I, mm -hmm. who was in um, uh, Donnie Brasco, you know, the movie yeah. with uh, uh, the movie. And then I did uh, uh, George uh, Jung, uh, who was in Blow, you know, the movie Blow, uh, and, uh, which was a really big movie. And uh, I've had several other people, too. In fact, uh, uh, Thursday, this Thursday, I'll have uh, F. Lee Bailey. I don't know if he's famous in Ireland, but he's a really famous lawyer here in the United States, and I'll be getting him on. So it's, from it's from the O.J. case? Pardon? Oh, yeah, he did the O.J. case. He was part of the so-called dream team of lawyers yeah. that defended um, O.J., and uh, even today he still thinks he's innocent. So it's going to be interesting talking to him about that case. And didn't really think he believes that he has to say that, doesn't he? Because otherwise, <laughs> he'd he'd be making a retrospective liar of himself. <laughs> yeah, well, right, right. Well, he I, he also has defended uh, Bill Cosby too. So I don't know what that says says about uh, F. Lee Bailey, but he's a very very brilliant lawyer, and I know he have a lot to say about uh, the law and. Um, some of the big cases he's been involved with. Okay, well, we've got to tune in. But in the meantime, the book is called Narcos, Inc., The Rise and Fall of the Cali Cartel. It's published by Maverick House. It's priced around 12 euro. And its author, Ron Chepsik, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much, Pat. It's been a pleasure. The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with MasterCard. Explore your passion for travel with exclusive breaks at Priceless.com. Let's play a game.